So we see here in Scripture that, and I say this a little tongue-in-cheek, Peter immediately stands up and begins to address all of the social ills that are going around these dispersed and persecuted Jews. He points out how oppressive the Roman government is and how they have caused many social injustices. He then promises the entire crowd to advocate on their behalf a large list of poll-tested, pre-approved social agendas that would signal the virtue of the early church and gain the approval of as many people groups as possible. Is that what you see? Is that what the church is doing today? That's not what Peter did. He simply got up and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. He proclaimed the repentance of sins is needed for the forgiveness of God. He simply was the witness that Jesus told him and all the others that they were to be. My friends, the call of God on the church has not changed. We are to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not political machines that appeal to people's social and political interests. Now let me be clear, there are issues and there are programs that are beneficial to the purpose and the needs of the church. Things like children's ministries and Awana and small groups and and music and worship and justice and morality and thematic teachings on how to be a good parent or to steward your money well. These things are not harmful to the church. In fact, they may bring a value to the church, but they do become harmful. They do become harmful when they are elevated over that of the teaching and the preaching of God's Word and His Gospel. You see, there is nothing more important in the church, nor should anything ever be elevated over the proclamation of the whole Word of God. Amen, church? That is our goal. Nor should the Word of God be dumbed down or edited to appeal or to win the approval of those who do not believe or maintain a brand of Christianity that keeps us comfortable. Nothing breaks my my heart more than to see a church stagger down the road of social relevance at the cost of biblical truth. Personally, I cannot comprehend attending a church where the teaching of God's Word is not preeminent. May I be bold with you this morning and borrow this boldness from Peter as he delivers the first expository sermon that the early church will ever give. May I be bold in our lives this morning, whether you are here or you are on the internet tuning in. If you attend a church where you tolerate the lack of teaching and preaching of God's Word to get to the programming that that assembly offers, it's time to shake yourself awake to what is important. So let me be clear. While we want to be excellent in all that we do here, above all else, we want to excel at knowing God's Word and becoming more like Jesus Christ. What I want here to see here see most is that from day one of the church, day one of the church, 
Preaching the Word of God is central to the mission of the church. Can I get a witness on that today? That is central to the mission of the church. For without it, we are lost. Without it, we are merely moral, not saved. So let's look at what Peter does when there are thousands upon thousands attending the first church's community event. Pentecost. All right? And they're all gathered around and Peter had inflated the bounce houses and, and put up booths with sign-up sheets and, and had classes for every special interest. Do you understand where I'm going here, church? First community event. Let's take a look at what Peter does here. But Peter, taking his stand with the other eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, know this and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what has been spoken through the Old Testament prophet Joel. So, let's take a look at this first community event here. He says, know this and pay attention to my words. This phrase, by the way, is a common first century Jewish vernacular that, that, that expresses confidence and boldness in what you're about to say. There is no equivocation in Peter's heart or mind. He makes no apology for what he is about to teach. Here it is. He is about to be bold. He is about to be, to be, to be forceful in what he says. From day one, it was the bold proclamation of the Word of God that was central to the church. In fact, did you know that throughout the entire book of Acts, and really the entire earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, He's proclaiming the gospel through the Scriptures. Have you not heard? Is it not written? Constantly pointing to the Scriptures about the Messiah and the coming and the gospel. And I have not come to condemn but to save and seek that which was lost. It is, it is the central theme of the Bible, especially within the book of Acts. While Acts is filled with many amazing stories and healings and miracles, the spine of the letter of Acts is mainly a record of preaching God's Word from the church. From the church. So I want to make one simple observation here, and I, I'm going to pick, if I can, a biblical bone from this text I am so tired of hearing from my colleagues in ministry that the deterioration of the church is found and that we are no longer culturally relevant. Buckle up if your church is culturally relevant. That the church is, is, not, is deteriorating because it's not culturally relevant or that we're not pushing the right social issues. Let me just make it clear. The deterioration of the American church is not found in their lack of programming or social awareness. The deterioration of the church is found in the decline of powerful biblical preaching that is applied to our lives. That is the deterioration of the church. I want you also to notice here that Peter twice says to the audience, pay attention. Listen carefully. Don't stray off. Oh, if I could bring it 2,000 years in the future. Put your phone down. Stop pretending it's your Bible. I just pulled a hamstring. 
twice. He says it in verse 14. Look at your Bibles, not your phones. He says it in verse 14 and he says it in verse 22. No matter, here's the application. No matter how dynamic the speaker is or how dull the speaker is or may be, the audience has a responsibility to listen carefully. Huh. Huh. That's Greek for wow. It's also this, never mind, stay focused. The responsibility of a good sermon lies not only with the preacher, but with the listener. With the listener. Ian Newberry, who was a a pastoral intern here, and I had the opportunity to mentor him and him mentor me. And our, uh, Amy and I spent a lot of time with them because they were going into ministry, and now our pastors over on the other side of the state. He taught me this because you should always treat someone as though they have something to tell you that you do not already know. He taught me this. He said. Every sermon, God has something he wants me to hear. No matter how good, how dull, how boring. I said, where are you going with this, Ian? All right. But you understand what I'm saying here is that it is the responsibility of the listener to listen. But the question rises, why does Peter have this boldness? Why does Peter have this boldness? Because he's about to simply and clearly teach the Word of God. One of my greatest fears in teaching God's Word is that I may lead you astray, that I might say something that is not in the book, all right? Or to teach personal opinion. Well, while it's hard, I do my very best to keep that away from my study. But man, the boldness that comes from teaching what saith the Lord is breathtaking, So he starts out with a simple dismissal, all right? A simple dismissal of those who are rejecting what 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 they are hearing. You remember they got you got a group that says, What does this mean? And you got a group that says they're just drunk. All right? So he's going to address those two reactions here. And he says this, for these people are not drunk, as you assume, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, I want to pause right here. With a raise of hands, how many here have ever been drunk? No, I'm teasing, all right? <laughs> how many here have grown up in the church? Anyone grew up in the church? All right, all right. Now, how many here, when I was a teenager, and even... even um, as a kid, I remember hearing this, and it was very rarely ever explained. I, how many here ever, to be honest, how many ever thought to yourself, why is it impossible to be drunk by nine in the morning? Anyone ever wonder that at all with a raise of hand? Am I the only one? Thank you, Holly. Have you ever been able to get drunk by nine in the morning? It's hard. I know. All right? No, I don't. But you honestly never thought that? I mean, I have friends that have been drunk for days on end. You know, you drink through the night, you know, you don't go to bed, they're drunk at nine in the morning. Why is this some sort of proof text that by nine in the morning, they can't possibly be drunk? Well, the third hour is nine in the morning, all right? So Peter, with good humor, dismisses, now grab that, with good humor, there's humor here, dismisses this accusation because remember there's a feast going on it's it's a celebration a week of weeks seven times seven plus one which means how many days after passover talk to me how many days 50 
That's what Pentecost means, 50. So it's 50 days after Passover. So we're in the month of June, all right? And it's 9 in the morning. Most of the wine, if not all of the wine, in this time of year in Israel is from young grapes that has not been stored very long. Therefore, the fermentation is not at its fullest. All right? They didn't have the, the technology and vats and all that we have today. I'm not really up on this subject, but I have stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. All right? But they would pick the grapes. They were young. They would crush the grapes. They would go with thyme and yeast and sugar. Over time, the, the alcohol content rose. But young wine which is also known or translated within the Word of God, sweet wine, before it's fully fermented, fermented, however you pronounce that, all right, is not had a lot of time to get alcohol content. Therefore, it's called sweet wine or new wine. Hence, in verse 13 of this passage, it says, others were mocking, saying they were full of sweet wine. It was young. It was fresh. It was June. Now, as a teen, I often wondered why someone couldn't get drunk by 9 a.m. Why not? Why not? The answer in the humor here is not just in the time of day, but in the month and the kind. Sweet, young, new, and also the amount of people who are being accused of being drunk. So you have the amount of people, the the time of the year, the month of the year, the kind, and the hour of the day. Generally speaking, new young sweet wine has lesser alcohol content, less time for fermentation. I, I, I researched this by talking to some of my close friends. There is no possible way, here it is, there is no possible way that 120 people could be stone drunk by 9 in the morning in June with new sweet wine. The alcohol content is too low. In fact, I was talking to one expert, and it was probably the best week of study of my life, all right? I was talking to one expert, and he said this, you would have to drink so much young, sweet, new wine that you would literally be sick to your stomach before you would get drunk on it. One would have to drink too much, so much. Now, two truths pop out here that make me smile. There is no way this many people at this time of the year with this kind of wine at nine in the morning could be drunk. The second thing that makes me smile is that Peter knew his wine. (laughs) Peter, Peter knows. He's well experienced in this area, all right? But now comes why he is so bold. So he starts out with a little humor. And now he goes into his boldness. But this has happened, spoken through the prophet Joel. Peter might as well say, turn into your Bibles to the book of Joel, chapter 2, 28 through 32. Peter is about to simply unpack expositorily the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. Expositorily. He doesn't say, well, today I'm going to start out with the theme of good fatherhood. Today I'm going to start out with the theme of social... No, it is, it, is, it is straightly unpacked from the Word of God. A scripture, all right? A message about Christ and what is happening right now. Let me summarize in simplicity what he is doing. He is simply teaching about Christ from Old Testament scriptures. Oh, to keep things simple and understandable. Peter incorporates some humor here. Humor is a great tool to disarm the hearer. 
It is a great tool. Jesus used it. Peter used it. Others used it to disarm the hearer. And, and, and do you know, he says, do you know how much new wine it would take to intoxicate, there it is, 120 people by nine in the morning in June? He draws them in, and in that moment of opportunity, he inserts the scriptures of Joel. This is what we need today, the meaning of the text simply to be our message. Simplistic teaching of God's Word is a lost gift in the modern church. We like to complicate things. We like to make it as, as, uh, uh, as nuanced as possible because it gives us side roads to rationalize and reinterpret so that we can remain the control of our lives rather than the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon taught this well. In fact, in his college, he would often give his students a text on the spot and tell them to preach a simple message from that text. They would have no time to prepare. I'm thinking of doing this next week, all right? No, I promise I won't, all right? I will create a new doctrine. He would give them a text and and literally just say, speak a simple message from this immediately. And simple meaning short and clear. One day, one of his students was given the text of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a, a what kind of man? A wee little man. A wee little man was he. That's kind of a repetitive song, isn't it? We've got to dismiss that from our worship, all right? He climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to what? And Jesus came and said, what? I don't remember the rest of the song. <laughs> Come down, eat with me, and they off to go, all right? That's a summary. So the guy gets this, okay, Zacchaeus text. And the student stood up and boldly proclaimed, simply from Scripture, Zacchaeus was of little stature. So am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree. So am I. Zacchaeus came down. So will I. Zacchaeus walked with Jesus. So will I. And the student sat down. Man, we could just close our sermon right there, could we not? Well, we're not going to. <laughs> Don't be hating, all right? Don't be hating, haters hate. That's what I have to say. That message was straight up bussin', and that ain't no cap, all right? <laughs> now, for those of you who are not cool, all right, that means it was good, and that ain't no lie. All right. Did I get it right? Nailed it. How cool am I? Seriously, that's a question. David, how cool am I? No? Okay. I hardly knew what I said there either. Let's, so let's, I'm speaking in tongues, technically, all right? So let's look at a simple, accurate, bold, straight from the Scripture message that is about Christ from the Old Testament about what they are seeing happening in front of their eyes as 120 followers of Christ are proclaiming miraculously the gospel to all those around in their own native tongue. This is what he does. Verses 17 through 21. And it shall be in the last day, God says, 
that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and old men will have dreams. And even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy, and I will display wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke, and sun will move turned into darkness, and the moon into blood. How many are going, oh, this is so applicable to my life? It is. That's why you don't skip around. It is all Scripture is beneficial, amen? To know it. To know it. So that we're not lulled to sleep in some cultural Christianity that that convinces us we are saved with no love for God. This is the greatest lie that Satan has ever whispered in the ears of Grand Rapids. The great and glorious day of the Lord comes, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now you may ask, why is it all bold uppercase? In our day and age, to write like this means that you are screaming and yelling. And that is true, that all good preaching is loud. Let me say that again. A little louder. All right, now. The reasons it's all in uppercase is because it's a direct quote from the Old Testament. He's literally doing what Jesus did. Have you not heard? Is it not written? Here it is. It's properly sourced. Chicago Turabian format, all right? It's properly sourced. I'm talking here. <laughs> no, seriously. Who, who said what? what? What do you got, Holly? Wait, oh, there it is. What's that? Yes, but it's also in Acts chapter 2. So, if you wanted to leave now, I'd understand, Holly, all right? I'm teasing. So, in Luke chapter 2, 17 through 21, he is quoting... Did I miss something? Oh, it's okay. I will leave now. Holly, you got the rest, all right? My goodness. For those of you who are new here, I've been in Luke for three years, and the muscle memory of writing Luke is strong. So is my history with Holly. She's come to my last two churches, and I've asked the Lord to remove the thorn from my side, but three times I prayed. No, I love Holly. We're good friends. Maybe not after today, but we, we'll pray together and smooth this over later. Yes, it is in Joel, you are correct. It's an Acts, too. <laughs> Who knows? Could be in Luke. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know that yet. All right? Not everything is written. Let's focus in here, folks. All right? It shall be in the last days. It shall be in the last days. Is that correct, Holly? It shall be in the last days. This is a common Old Testament expression about the time God's Messiah would come and set up his kingdom. That's what that means. All right? Last days means the kingdom coming. We find it in Isaiah chapter 2, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, while this is commonly known in Israel, and they've been looking forward to this for a very long time, they did not understand that the coming of the Messiah would happen in two stages, two functions, two comings. The one here, the first one, is the suffering servant. We'll see it up there. 
who died on the cross for our sins, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. It's in Old Testament scripture, but they didn't focus on that because that's not what they were looking for. They were looking for a deliverer, not someone who was going to die. It also has a second part as a glorious king to set up his kingdom forever. We find that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, and in other passages as well. So we have in the last days, uh, begins when Jesus comes as a lamb, and it will end when he comes as a lion. Israel was really focused on the second one up there and totally neglected the first, even though both are in Scripture. That's understandable when you're constantly under oppression from nations like Egypt, Rome, and the Babylonians. So when you see the phrase, the last days, I need you to understand that it is referring to both events as one, all right? The first one marks the beginning of the last days. The second one is the second coming of Jesus Christ and represents his second coming, which will be after the great tribulations, seven bulls, seven seals, seven trumpets, and he will conquer all of his enemies and he will set up his literal physical, the kind of kingdom Israel was looking for, his literal physical kingdom that marks the end of the last days. Therefore, the last days has both a now, Jesus came and died for us, and a not yet, he is coming again as a lion. It has a present, right now, we're in it, for 2,000 years, we have been in the last days, all right? And it has a future aspect in that we're waiting for his return. It has a present and future aspect to it. For example, we have been in the last days for nearly two millennia from Pentecost to the second coming that has not yet happened. So it's with this in mind that we unpack the rest of this passage and we're almost done. Medium, medium done, medium well. So it is with this in mind, already and not yet, the now but not yet understanding last days, that we have to take that understanding of it here and dump it into these verses. And it says this. And God says that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will have dreams and even on my male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. All of these things that you see written up there represent the now of the last days. The, the coming of Jesus Christ as a lamb who suffered as a servant and died for our sins. All of these things are found in the book of Acts and through the New Testament. It marks the inauguration of the last days. We see the Spirit is being poured out on 120 right now. And in that 120, in that upper room, with the sound of a mighty wind and what looked like and appeared to be fire dividing up and resting upon them, we have how many, how many kinds of people? Talk to me. Just give me, give me diverse descriptions of people. We have men and we have what? Women. We have chaste and unchaste. We have educated and country bumpkins. I mean, it is, it is a spattering of all things. You have Simon the zealot terrorist and Matthew the Roman tax collecting disciple. You have Mary Magdalene. You have all of these people here being poured out on 120 men and women, old, young, free, slave. They are prophesying the gospel in the tongues of many languages. Cornelius, John, and Peter will have visions and dreams in Acts chapter 9, 18, Revelation chapter 4. We could dig deeper into this, but it's really not even the focus of this passage. 
It's not the focus of this passage. All right? Remember, we have a very unique phenomenon happening in the ministry of the Holy Spirit that rather than being corporate, it becomes personal and individual. The focus is not on the what they are doing, but on the three groups that are mentioned here. Sons and daughters. Young men and old men. And male and female, what? Servants. The overwhelming point here is this. It's not what is happening, but who it's happening to. That when the last days begin, the Spirit of God will be poured out on all people. Now, what kind of culture are we in here? In a culture that valued age over youth, the Spirit of God will fall on the young as much as the old. In a culture that did not value daughters equal with sons, The Spirit of God will fall equally on both sons and daughters, male and female. In a culture that had classes of human beings, all right, all the way down to the lowest class of a bond slave or bond servant, the Spirit of God, now this will blow their minds, the Spirit of God will fall equally on male and female servants. Oh, to study the Word of God. The Bible is not affirming here social and biological or class levels of people. It is in reality blowing them out of the water. Whether you are male or female, free or not, young or old, God's Spirit equally for all, even those that men, t- men tend to forget in our sinful social scale, the, 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 the Spirit of God will indwell equally all men and women regardless of age or sex or status. Amen, church? There is no such thing as elite Christianity. Oh, the gospel is light years ahead of our social conscience culture today. Our culture today promotes a pseudo-inclusion. A pseudo-inclusion and acceptance. Labeling people into different groups of oppressed or oppressors and, 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 and labeling them into different tribes. Making sure that they identify with their own individual communities and each one is a victim of the other and, and you're a victim of this and this and you're attacking. And, they, they, and in doing so in our social culture, who by the way, is Prince is Satan... They divide us up into all of these little groups, keeping sexism and racism and classism alive so that they can stay in power and give the illusion that they're needed. The gospel destroys those things. The gospel destroys these things and frees us in the name of the Lord. For we know that the oppressor is not a group of people. The the oppressor is sin and death. Our salvation is not in a politician, but in Jesus Christ. And the true church does not value its members based on sex or race or class or age, but rather in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Every single one who believes. That is the church. The true church. So with that now. Comes now the not yet. 
It's the second part here. To, to a first century Jew, this is just firing on all cylinders here. So he says this. He goes, well, that's the now. Let's, not, let's go into the not yet. And I will display wonders in the skies and signs and earth below, blood, fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Whew. These references are directed to the future. It points to the end of the last days. And that we have been in for the last 2,000 years. Simplistically, they point to the Great Tribulation. Look at that list. They point to the Great Tribulation just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation chapter 9. The point is this. The last days will come to an end. And with it, the wrath of God will be poured out in divine judgment. Look at that list. When God's kingdom is finally established, He will judge mankind. And when that day, great day of judgment comes, it is called the day of the Lord. Oh, to see the exegesis of the text. But what value does this have to us? It's mind-boggling. The kingdom comes in two parts. It started with the suffering servant, Jesus dying for our sins, and, and Pentecost here and the Holy Spirit, and it will end at the day of the Lord when he will bring judgment. And you may say, well, pastor, it's getting late. How will this help me raise my children? How will this help me balance my finances? How will this get me through the day at work tomorrow? What is the rub? How do I fix my now? Maybe, just maybe, this isn't about that. Maybe Jesus is the center of the Scriptures, not us. Amen? That's not the message. The message here is eternity. There is no greater value of now than to know where you will spend eternity. And if we are silent for just a moment and just listen to the text, we may hear it. Allow me to translate what this means. For is that not the question? What does this all mean? Shh. There could be no simpler message from the Scriptures. Listen to how simple it is. Listen to how beautiful it is. Do you hear the message rise quietly from the pages? Peter's message is simple, and it is from Scripture. Peter is saying that the last days have now begun, and the clock of God's final judgment is ticking. Oh, church, the clock is ticking. His grace has come at His first coming, and His divine universal judgment will come at the second. It began at Pentecost, and it will end at the second coming. And the last days are upon us. We are in them now, and every grain of sand that falls through is the grace of God until judgment comes. So the question rises, how do we escape this judgment? And Peter wastes no time. He offers a simple biblical answer. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
And as the months go by, and the days click, and the hours tick, and the minutes tock, the grace of God is present and His wrath of judgment grows closer. Oh, my friends, there can be no more relevant church on the face of the planet than the one whose message is this, that before you are laid in the grave, you must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That's it. Everything else is secondary. My friends, have you called on the name of the Lord to be saved? Have you repented of your sins? Turn towards Jesus for the forgiveness of God. If you have not, do it today. If you have, regardless of your age, your sex, your status, God will pour His Spirit into you and save your soul. If you have not done this, don't leave here today without placing your faith, repenting, turning towards Jesus, life-transforming faith today. We'd love to show you. How will you know if you truly have called on the name of the Lord in a way that has saved you? You will have a transformed life. The evidence of true salvation is not an assigned gift. The evidence of true salvation is in godly, ever-increasing godly character. You love what he loves, and you hate what he hates. And so, with this crowd waits with bated breath the message of Peter... This was just the introduction. We haven't even gotten to the application. That's next week. Peter will proclaim the word of God because nothing, church, let's end in agreement, nothing is more powerful and more relevant to the needs of all mankind than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, chase and draw those who do not know you. May they not leave here today until they place authentic, sin-repenting, life-changing faith in you. And Lord, if there are generations within the church which we know to be true, that have just prayed a prayer and don't care, chase them too. Your word is perfect. Your word is relevant. Every last syllable. May you glorify yourself in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.